This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 51 of Here's How. Smory McCarthy was elected to the Icelandic Parliament for the Pirate Party this week. In this podcast, an interview that I recorded with Smory shortly before the election. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. I'm joined on the line now by a pirate. Uh, Smory McCarthy is a candidate in the upcoming Icelandic general election, the election for the Icelandic parliament. Um, McCarthy doesn't sound like a typical Icelandic name. I know that you're uh, part Icelandic, part uh, Irish, Smory. Um, tell me exactly what the pirate party is, where it came from, why why you got involved. Uh, the Pirate Party is a uh, political movement that started in Sweden uh, around the middle of the, the noughties, um, uh, centered around ideas about uh, access to information, privacy, uh, civil liberties in the kind of digital realm, and uh, was really filling a gap where, where no political movements at the time were uh, actively taking uh, taking an interest in this kind of emerging environment of, of online civil liberties and, and so on. Um, but we've mer- uh, evolved quite a bit since then and have uh, just kind of broadened our base to uh, think not just about uh, civil liberties in the kind of digital context, but but also the wider context of um, of society in general. And so we're using... Uh, a, a very strong civil liberties-backed approach and a very kind of information-driven approach, general public to political parties. But then, of course, they grew to be much more than that. So we're kind of following a similar trajectory with a, a somewhat different um, uh, and, in my opinion, better uh, basis point to, to start from. Is it possible um, that you're overselling that slightly? I know the name, the Pirate Party, it came from uh, essentially people wanting to be to to download and uh, upload um, content that might be copyrighted without fear of being prosecuted. That's that's a very uh, um, antagonistic way of, of putting what what has been one of the most interesting uh, kind of discussions in the in the last decade. Um, so. What really was happening was, um, so if you want to go into the history of this, the, uh, there was a, a kind of a, a anti-piracy bureau set up by, by Hollywood lobbyists in Sweden, uh, in, in 2006-ish. And, uh, they were arguing, okay, copyright violations are bad. Okay, fair enough. Except they were uh, arguing in favor of putting in place various uh, restrictions on how computer technology could be used, uh, proposing that uh, that all internet connections be spied on, and so on and so forth. Um, so around the same time, uh, a group of activists responded by forming what was known as a piracy bureau. 
Uh, and their their basis was to say the Pirate look, Bay was was based in Sweden as well. This was a huge yeah, uh, torrent well, website for, where, where it, they didn't specifically host pirated material, but you could certainly find a lot of pirated right. material there. Yeah. So the Pirate Bay became a spin-off from the Pirate Bureau, and the way that this was uh, the way that people were thinking about this was not just hey let's just uh, you know allow copyright violations willy nilly, but rather a more ideological uh, statement of look. Um, the marginal cost of copying data is now zero, um, and there are people who who do not necessarily have the economic means to uh, to acquire you know whichever data. So there is a need for. Oh, we're talking about rethink- films and music here. Yeah, sure, uh, but also books and also uh, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you know there 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 is certainly a kind of freeloader aspect to this, and you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna defend that bit, but the the ideological observation of saying uh, look when the marginal cost of reproduction is zero. And uh, people are still fighting to uh, control the spread of information, which you know can be done by various means, you know, encrypted, non-encrypted, whatever. Then, of course, you get into a, a question of, um, uh, okay, how uh, how is it acceptable that uh, a group of people are fighting for the right to exclude people, uh, you know, certain people from knowledge on the basis of econ- economics? while simultaneously uh, requesting the right to spy on and monitor everybody's internet connection and to put restrictions on how people can use technology. So okay. we're not saying we're not saying would you, would, you, would you say that the core of what you were saying was that the goal preventing piracy um, was being uh, sought after with disproportionate means by putting essentially yes. spying technology into into all computers and all all uh, internet connections. Right. Uh, yes, absolutely. And on top of that, you also have this kind of big question about whether people have the right to know, whether people have the right to seek information and impart information, and where the line gets drawn there. So you know if. Um, uh, if we imagine, you know, that uh, that the works of you know, Plato or Aristotle were to come out today, and I were to read them and say, "Wow, this is absolutely groundbreaking stuff!" I really want you know my friends to know about this. I would actually be restricted in doing and in, in sharing that information by copyright. Now, you know, we we well, feel hold, very hold on str- for a second there. Hold on for a second. But, First of but, all, but, you, you're you're not restricted on sharing um, Socrates or Aristotle because those works are obviously out of copyright and have been for millennia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any, but, anything that is no, published saying, now yeah, will yeah. be out of copyright, even in the most restrictive countries within um, within less than a century. Yeah, and, no, I, I, and I said, no, no, just just one second. If it is, um, if a regime exists whereby copyright either doesn't exist or is impossible to enforce, then why should anybody bother? Uh, creating anything new or original if they're never going to get paid for it. Yeah, well, so uh, I, I did say that uh, I, I meant if those works were to come out today, mm-hmm. which mean, I means it would be under copyright. And uh, it's actually an interesting point that the, the, both uh, um, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, etc., actually did write those works despite the fact that there was no copyright in, in existence at the time. But but but, but what was developed yeah, at the no, time no, was no, that was extremely no. rare. One or two people in ancient Greece wrote things that are still relevant. Yeah, now, sure, uh, absolutely. But it, it was the exception. Look, now it's the rule. 
Yeah. No, uh, here's the thing. Human creativity is an, is a limitless thing. People will always create uh, just because they want to. Uh, that That is the nature of humans. We are creative uh, as a species. However, there are the, the original argument for copyright uh, was, you know, protecting the economic rights of, of the, uh, the creators mm-hmm. um, to a certain degree. Actually, if you go back to like the Statute of Anne, it did actually m- much more so was in order to allow the government to um, restrict the publication of, uh, of uh, things which they didn't agree with and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, but the economic rights of artists were, were definitely one of the concerns. Now, uh, we don't dispute that. We want to actually protect the economic rights of artists. Mm-hmm. We just think that uh, that restricting the distribution uh, is a disproportionate way of doing so in a, a era where um, where uh, uh, reproduction of of a digital artifact is something that has zero marginal cost. So sure, it has want- zero marginal cost, but it does have an enormous cost to create. And people, for example, enjoy Hollywood blockbuster films like the uh, the Marvel and DC films that cost yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars to create. Absolutely. If the if those studios lose the ability to monetize that. Uh, it doesn't matter how creative yeah. studio how how yeah. creative no, the, the studios true. are; they're not going to be made. Uh, this is true, but uh, even with all of the uh, rampant uh, illegal copying of uh, of movies that's going on, uh, you still see that uh, movies are making more money than ever at the moment. Artists can be uh, can be well monetized, well wealthy, uh, possibly even wealthier than ever, while simultaneously protecting the rights of uh, individuals in society. That's basically where we want to go with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to move on to that. And uh, I, I know, obviously, uh, you're uh, uh, based in Iceland. Uh, yep. The Pirate Party has had some uh, success and been represented in the National Parliament in Iceland. They've also had uh, members of the European Parliament elected from uh, Sweden and Germany, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. I know in Berlin right now, the Pirate Party is defending. It got quite a large vote in the last uh, state elections in berlin in germany uh, yes. and they're fighting to retain their seats on the on the on the berlin government um and the pirate party has essentially broadened its focus uh, and is particularly interested in digital rights and digital privacy moving away from piracy prevention what 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 do you see as the main most important policy goal that you have in that Okay, so uh, you take a city like Shenzhen where there are over 4 million CCTV cameras uh, that are operated by the public authorities. Uh, you look at the city like London, which has over 2 million uh, such cameras. And, you know, that, that's yeah, one Some people thing. in some countries might, might find that unbelievable. In London, the UK is a particular example whereby there are literally millions, millions and millions of CCTV cameras in some countries. I guess people in the United States would find that absolutely shocking. The authorities are surveilling people to that extent. There's an extent to which they are, they're popular. People think that there's some sort of like talisman against crime. But um, if there's right. two million cameras, yeah, the, are there two million people watching them or is it just? No, uh, of course not. Uh, so that's the thing. Um, there, uh, these cameras are, be- are recording and the argument for them is that it allows, uh, it, somehow deters crime, which uh, the statistics just do not bear out. The uh, violent crimes, for instance, do not go down, but they move around to different locations. Um, 
uh, in in cities where uh, where there have been uh, massive CCTV installations. Uh, you also think about um, uh, you know the the possibility of uh, rewinding and and reviewing and seeing kind of evidence, but in practice uh, there there hasn't been a major uptake of uh, solved crimes due to CCTV cameras. And we, we see this also in phone system, right? So most European countries have implemented a uh, European directive from 2006 called the uh, uh, Data Retention Directive. Mm-hmm. And what it says is that uh, every telecoms provider is required to uh, store information about the origin and destination, the duration, and um, uh, and uh, the amount of data transferred in uh, every uh, every telecommunications transaction. So, so this is like every- a detailed bill. They're ke- they're they're keeping in a database everybody's uh, itemized phone bill uh, for yes. two years. I believe is that correct? Yeah, it, it varies from six months to two years depending on country. Um, but it, it basically, yeah, it's an it's an itemized phone bill, but it isn't just your phone calls. It's your text messages. It's your uh, it's which websites you visit and in which order you visit them. You know, it's uh, it's all sorts of stuff like this, which uh, it's generally called metadata collectively. And uh, this is done by by way of this uh, data retention directive in Europe. And because it's a, a, a legal measure, um, we have lots of statistics on how act, uh, effectively it's been working. And the, the reality is um, uh, this measure is costing uh, consumers about uh, uh, only two euros per person, but in aggregate that's a, a, a per year, but in aggregate that's a really large number uh, that's being spent on this. But uh, in terms of effectiveness, we're talking about uh, statistics from Denmark suggesting that uh, the average person has uh, 625 uh, different uh, events logged to their name every day. Uh, so, you know, that's different websites they're visiting, different messages they're sending, etc., and so on. Um, and uh, yet, you know, the, uh, the, the total number of, of crimes that have been solved. So generally speaking, uh, crimes which involve telecommunications in any way were being solved at a rate twice as high as um, uh, other crimes even before this was adopted. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen now is that uh, retained telecommunications data has only been effective in 0.00025% uh, of cases. Mm-hmm. Right? That's statistics from Germany. So we, you know, uh, w- what this means is it's expensive, it's disproportionate because it's completely, it's monitoring every telecommunications activity of every person in in society. This, and this on top is the way of that, Europe it, just, this. it just doesn't work. It, yeah. sure, it, um, it does seem to be true, though, that the authorities really, really want this information to be available. Um, yeah. In in Europe, they do it by by directive and require the telecoms companies to retain that metadata. In uh, the US, uh, this is done by the NSA, and we saw with the yes. uh, Snowden leaks yeah. that they're, so essentially the, the person... they're, they're achieving the same effect uh, by just taking all the data and keeping it for as long as they like. Isn't it better that that is done in an open way by uh, governments in a way that can be reviewed than uh, the NSA method, method that's just uh, taking it and keeping it and doing what they want with it? 
Yeah, so the the NSA's prison program is uh, illegal by by any definition. There there's uh, no basis for it in U.S. law. Uh, the uh, the European method, yes, it is more open and democratic. It is uh, it is better to be doing it like that. But uh, given that it is completely ineffective and is a violation of the principle of proportionality, it would be better to not do it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, governments seem to really like these kind of things. They like doing these things where they intrude into people's privacy. And, Th- this and, is true. Uh, and, right. and I'm wondering but, whether this is – because I think of the, the – the, um, uh, what's essentially called the cock-up theory of history that, um, you know, politicians are generally older guys. They're not all that tech-savvy and somebody comes along and shows them something shiny and new and says, hey, we can do all these clever things. Probably they can't do all that much clever stuff. And is it really that effective? Okay, you say it costs perhaps, perhaps you know, a couple of bucks per person per year. You know, is there any serious negative consequence? Yes. Uh, so violations of, of people's privacy rights, which uh, you know, uh, you know, you can you can uh, state it broadly, but the way that this turns out in practice is uh, you have a register of what everybody. Uh, uh, you know, all the communications everybody did. And this pretty quickly, it quickly leads to somebody saying, Hey, we can use this for, for this purpose and this purpose. Such as? And, um, in, in some cases, uh, there have been known, uh, the system administrators have been known to, uh, use this information to spy on their spouses. In some cases, uh, police have been accessing this information, uh, without court orders in order to, uh, track down, um, and, and, uh, frame innocent people. Mm-hmm. There have been cases where uh, the data collected through these methods have leaked out onto the internet, and this has led to, you know, everything from, uh, from, you know, uh, household, uh, disagreements over, you know, people just becoming, uh, very, very suspicious of each other to, you know, severe things like people losing their jobs because the information shows that they have, uh, have some kind of disease, maybe, you know, uh, have, are, are cancer victims or something like that. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, cancer patients and, and just, uh, are seeking treatment, but the workplace will, uh, would rather just not have to deal with that. So, so people lose their jobs. In some cases, you see, uh, people's insurance premiums go up because, you know, they're known to have some kind of factors that, you know, it's, it's basically a, a whole host of different problems that come into existence once people's fundamental right to privacy is, is annulled. I, I understand what you're saying and I can see how, how, um, People don't particularly like to uh, be spied upon, but they don't seem to mind it that much because essentially over the past decade, pretty much every adult in the Western world has put a sophisticated tracking device into their pocket whereby they can be tracked and they seem to like having it there. But right. I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether you're comparing this to a, you know, to a mythical past, because if we go back a couple of centuries where people lived essentially in small villages and uh, operated in very small communities, the amount that pe- the amount of privacy that people have now is much greater than people have had at almost any time in history. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd agree with that. There's, uh, the, the concept of privacy has certainly changed. So, uh, the, the idea that, um, you know, the, 
children leave the village to to go to the big city in order to obtain a modicum of anonymity. That's a well-known concept, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly cities have become, uh, you know, net manufacturers of anonymity over over most of history. Uh, but uh, but at the same time, you know, in histor- uh, historically, we've had kind of cities and, and villages being relatively uh, space constrained, uh, constrained concepts. Whereas nowadays, you know, I, I can I can log onto social media and monitor you know, what my friends are up to in, in you know, all countries all around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's fine because they're normally choosing which things they share. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a right to self-determination factor there. Um, however, you know, if I were a system administrator who could get in, in under the hood and, and see all of the things that, that were being registered uh, from these friends of mine, such as their location, whether they're logged on at the moment or not, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it very quickly becomes very creepy because you're, you're basically monitoring everybody on the planet. Modular technology, of course. I, I can see how, how, how that does become creepy. Are you aware of any negative outcomes that go beyond creepy? Uh, Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's a kind of long, um, uh, long complicated thing, but let, let's look at it like this. Well, well, right? give, me, give me, give me the, the headline, uh, case. In a way, what you're asking for is, is the kind of, uh, big sensational stories, right? So, you, you know, you could ask for things like, okay, when have people been assassinated due to, uh, due to privacy leakages? Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually relatively common. It's, it doesn't get headlines, uh, pretty much ever, but, um, the, the number of times when people have been killed, uh, by, by either authorities or, uh, organized crime groups or, or terrorists, uh, on the basis of their, um, information having leaked is, is quite high. Mm-hmm. One one example that is uh, not certain but quite likely to have been the case was um, the um, uh, the death of Marie Corvin, a, a British journalist who was operating in Syria a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. where um, where a, a rocket struck near where where she was located, um, uh, killing her and and uh, a, a fixer who was working with her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it is, it has been hypothesized by, by a lot of people and kind of suggested that the rocket was trained in on, on the location of her phone. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, once you have that kind of information, you can do a lot of, a lot of pretty bad things. Uh, I've, I've been doing this kind of work in, in the kind of journalism space for quite a while and we have, you know, Actively been um, been targeted by governments, uh, various governments who have been uh, trying to uh, reduce the ability of of the journalists working with us to seek out information and and uh, you know get the story out. I, I, but but I'm I'm actually more interested in the in the uh, less extreme case because you know journalists and and activists and um, political operatives are always going to be you know they they you know, put themselves in the line of fire for a living and of course we need to protect those people but you know the people who are less protected are the general public and you know if we think about it today you have about 2.4 billion people in the world who are using email mm-hmm. right 
And in the old days of the early internet, uh, you know, anybody who wanted an email address would either, you know, set up their own email server or they would put, um, or they'd get a, get an account at one of the kind of local town internet service providers. Yes. That was all, you know, well and good. And since then, there's been huge consolidation in email providers. Yeah, now there's uh, about uh, so the top ten email providers in the world uh, are handling about ninety five percent of all email, mm-hmm. possibly more than that. Uh, so. That means that there are much bigger targets. So if you if you uh, if you hack one email provider, you've managed to uh, take over a very large amount. You know, you have access to a very large amount, a very large proportion of the world's email. Yeah. And so, yeah, and when, when everybody goes to one place or, or just a few places, if, if it's one place, we call it a single point of failure. Mm-hmm. And so if, if that point fails, everything fails. And, and so, you know, Facebook is essentially a single point of failure for 1.4 billion people. Mm-hmm. If their security were to fail, um, that would be, you know, that would be a tremendous blow to, to a lot of people for, you know, a, like it would be, it would be a tragedy. Right? Really? So, if somebody ha- hacked my Facebook page? Well, uh, no. Uh, think, think bigger. If it's not just your Facebook page, but you know Facebook's uh, data uh, center, their their main main database mm-hmm. leaks. If if for instance their entire like somebody private see my messaging photos. Mm, yeah, no. Think more about like all of your private con- uh, conversations, all of your chats. Mm-hmm. I mean, may, may, maybe you know some people use the chats for entirely innocuous things, but you know we we don't know what people are talking about, and nor do we have a right to know mm-hmm. what people are talking about privately. And if if everybody were to suddenly know what everybody had said privately, then that would be that would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but uh, we're also thinking about you know Twitter's a single point of failure for six hundred million people. Skype is a single point of failure for another six hundred million people, and. And so, you know, um, basically it's, uh, you know, it, it, there, there are a few um, um, big I just, services. I want, I, want to, I want to stop you on that because I just wanted to kind of challenge that as an intellectual level. Although I think that if anybody hacked my um, Facebook uh, account, the main threat would be that they would die of boredom. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at um, one case uh, of Jokhar Judaev, who was the Chechen leader in the war against uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1996, which is more than 20 years ago, uh, he was killed when the Russians uh, t- accessed um, a satellite phone that he was using and uh, targeted, used it to target a missile to, to kill him. Mm-hmm. But on a broader level, I'm not entirely sure that it's such a bad thing. That, right. that, that things, that I, I don't mean necessarily killing somebody, but, but that information can leak out in such a large way. And in particular, I'm thinking of the Panama Papers. And mm-hmm. in Iceland, your prime minister, who you're now running as a candidate against, uh, yep. his party in the, in the election in Iceland, uh, he was taken out because what would previously have been entirely secret was hacked and exposed and his his um uh, his involvement in in shady offshore companies uh, was exposed and the operations of the NSA was exposed by uh, Edward Snowden and the the fact that it can be done in such an electronic way and uh, at such a, uh, as you say, a, a single point of failure for a very large system actually mm-hmm. worked in his fa- favor because he could take a vast amount of evidence with him, which has been uh, feeding to the media. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, the humanity has gotten lucky a few times in the last, uh, last, uh, let's say, um, decade or so. There's mm-hmm. been, you know, massive data leaks, uh, that have exposed a lot of wrongdoing, uh, from, you know, the, uh, the documents that Chelsea Manning leaked, which uh, proved massive war crimes in, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Snowden documents, of course, which uh, exposed uh, mass scale, uh, so mass scale illegal surveillance of the entire population of the planet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, yeah, of course, the, the Panama Papers were an interesting example in, of, uh, of insight into a, a murky, uh, untransparent, um, state of, of, you know, offshore, uh, offshore tax havens and, and the like. So if we, if we look at, um, the total budget for investigative journalism, uh, globally, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, it appears to be something on the order of 14 million, no, sorry, $40 million per year. And, and so uh, if we compare that to the NSA, um, uh, or to the Five Eyes Network, so NSA and the GCHQ in the UK and the various other, you know, uh, Canadian, New Zealand, Australian, um, intelligence agencies. Uh, my, my rough estimate based on what we know from the Snowden leaks about the NSA's, um, budget suggests that they have a budget of, of over $120 billion per year mm-hmm. in, in aggregate, right? And that is $120 billion, which is being used to spy on every, uh, man, woman, and child on the planet, mm-hmm. right? And the arguments for doing this is, uh, that they want to, uh, you know, g- keep us safe from terrorism and, and do all sorts of uh, things like that, right? Uh, but when you start to look into, like, the, the effectiveness, just to you dwell on that for a moment, right? Mm-hmm. The effectiveness of NSA. Okay, so how many how many uh, actual uh, terrorism attacks have they defended against? How many how, how many terrorists have they caught? Um, the the answer is uh, we don't know. So so they're either not going to trial. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, which would be a violation of our, our basic fundamental laws, right? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, they aren't being caught in the first place, in which case, you know, uh, all the money is being wasted. So, you know, $120 billion being wasted on something that I, you know, either doesn't work as we want it to or doesn't work at all. Mm-hmm. And if you compare that to the effectiveness of, of, um, investigative journalists who, uh, who expose the, the Snowden files, who expose the illegal monitoring of all, all people on the planet, uh, or the effectiveness of the journalists working on the, uh, Panama Papers who exposed, you know, uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of, uh, of, of hidden assets and tax havens. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'd basically say, you know, maybe we should be funding the journalists better and allow them to muckrake and allow them to dig down into the, the stories because they, unlike the, the government authorities, do not have the legal authority to, to, um, uh, persecute people, to prosecute people, to drone people, you know, to, to eliminate people by, by way of extrajudicial killing. Uh, journalists basically don't do that. So, you know, they are a more trustworthy party in this, this entire game, right? Smori, uh, I need to wrap it up, but just very quickly, when is the election taking place in Iceland? 
the election is on the 29th of October, unless we're hoping 29th of October, but hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully they won't, uh, do anything silly. <laughs> um, Samori McCarthy, one of the founders of the Icelandic Party, also a candidate in the upcoming election. Not sure when it is. Thank you very much for talking to me. Okay, thanks. Make your view heard. Dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. That's almost the end of episode 51 of Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, published on the 4th of November 2016. There's links to Smory's website and other information on this podcast's page on the website. If you can think of a topic that should be covered in the next show, or if you want to suggest someone to include, and that could be yourself, then let me know. If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and give it a rating or even write a nice review. Also, please like the show on Facebook, follow the podcast on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, follow Smorry at S-M-A-R-I-M-C, subscribe to the podcast also so new shows automatically come into your podcast feed. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio or any other podcast app or software. If you don't know how to do that, there is step-by-step instructions along with contact details at www.hereshow.ie. The next show will be uploaded shortly. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>